everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Web3 Native Podcast. Today, I'm so excited to invite our guest, the one and only Koopa Troopa. Hey, how's it going? What's going on, man? Thank you so much for having me. Certainly. And we have a really exciting topic as well to dive into that is really timely, I think, and slightly ahead of the curve. And so we have invited the perfect person to talk about it. Uh, now, just for everyone who's maybe not heard of Cooper Trupa, a.k.a. Cooper Turley, we understand that your background is from something like 100 DAOs, right? Would you like to just elaborate hmm. a bit on that? Yeah, absolutely. These days, I spend most of my time working in internet communities. I'm very passionate about something called the creator economy. So helping creators use new technology to build audiences online. And so a lot of what I do is help work with new creators on crypto and basically standing up tokens, NFTs, DAOs, anything that you can think of to help activate their communities and do cool work together. Yes. And is the number correct? Because previously, I think when you appeared, uh, you mentioned something like 87 DAOs. What's the record now? <laughs> Yeah, we're at about 105 and counting. I think by the next oh, podcast, wow. we'll probably be at 200. <laughs> oh, dear. It's broken past 100. Awesome. Congrats on that. Yeah, it's super funny. I mean, what I'll say is that um, we are entering an unprecedented territory of internet communities being stood up. You know, every week I have dozens of incredible people coming to me saying, how do I get involved in crypto? I have an idea for a DAO and I have an idea for an NFT or a social token. And what's novel to me about this is that for a long time in crypto, people have only asked, like, what tokens do I buy? Like, where do I put my money? I think now people are thinking about how do I incentivize community? How do I build products and services together? And so where I sit right now is just trying to be a guide and a reference. If you're excited about crypto, you've sort of taken that initial leap of faith and you're looking for guidance on how to get started. You know, my role is to basically point you in the right direction, share resources and people to talk to so that you can get started. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's such a refreshing kind of a niche or community, uh, right, from, from the crypto perspective, right? I think every, a lot of people have been talking about DeFi, everybody's super excited about NFTs, and underlying both of these is actually the idea of community, right? In the past few episodes, this has always been a recurring theme, I think, in the back of everyone's minds, we know it's about the people and the DAOs behind it. So that's exactly what we like to dive deeper in today, right? The idea of uh, social tokens or DAO or creator tokens and this creator economy. I think to many, it, it may be less defined compared to something like DeFi. We know what it is, like NFTs, we know what it is. Where social tokens, mm -hmm. how would you kind of define where, where do you draw the lines or boundaries of what it is? Yeah, so I think of social tokens as tokens that represent a brand, individual, or a community. With DeFi, you see financial products that have tokenized components to them. With NFTs, you see things like art or gaming assets that have tokenized components to them. But what I think is unique about social tokens, it's much more ethos-based and community-driven. You have a shared group of individuals that are coming together to solve some mission. You know, whatever that mission is, is completely undefined. And you now have financial assets in the form of fungible tokens that represent ownership in that collective. And so the topic of social tokens ranges for everything to grant-giving DAOs to more social clubs like Friends with Benefits, to NFT collector groups, you know, it's a very large bucket. And I think the biggest unlock here is that we as a community have now recognized that anyone can create a token and anyone can stand up an internet community. And what we're looking to do now is to formalize that and go from it being something that you trade on the back of a meme to actually having working capital to deploy, to hiring people, to figuring out how to build products and services together and how to build out a community owned treasury to go ahead and activate and solve that mission that you guys want to come together and solve. 
Mm -hmm. So you would actually categorize, for example, even the DAOs that are forming uh, with DeFi projects, around DeFi projects, or the venture DAOs to, say, collect NFTs or, or uh, do liquidity mining. You would categorize these as social tokens as well. I think you could categorize them as social tokens. You know, um, what I recognize is a lot of social clubs are very human centric in their nature. You know, people are coming together for town halls. They're doing guest presentations. It's focused more on education and awareness. You know, where this differs from a DeFi protocol is that many DeFi protocols are centered around driving protocol fees. You know, they have smart contracts that are running autonomously. They're driving fees back into a treasury. Um, a social club and a social DAO typically doesn't have that. You know, a lot of the times it's pre any on-chain revenue. There's not a lot of products and services that are generating anything on chain. Instead, it's using an asset as sort of access to a community. And the governance to that community is much more about who you're meeting in that and the social elements of it, rather than the on-chain revenue that's being generated from something like a smart contract or from a DeFi protocol. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So as long as it's more about the people, the flavor of it, it's like tending towards a social token. Perfect, perfect. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, and uh, I would just uh, plug a little bit for Longhash Ventures as well. Actually, in our mm -hmm. thesis, uh, on our new website, which you can check out, longhashventures.com, uh, we do say that uh, what we want to build or support are these like new breed of companies that actually are more inclusive and transparent, but uh, that spawn from new economic and social infrastructure. So uh, we do think this is quite an underappreciated area uh, in crypto today, right? Or, or maybe it needs to be talked about more because uh, it's not just about the products, it's, it's a lot about the people. And of course, being uh, in this space, we, we tend to be, we, we might get lost in the circle. So we want to keep it real and talk about some actual examples, what it means, what, uh, what works, and what are some examples that you're seeing, you know, from this like 105 today, which ones would you highlight? Yeah, the one I'm most excited about is a community called Friends with Benefits. This is a culture crypto community that's defining what it means to have the ultimate cultural membership. So for reference, uh, people hold tokens in the form of FWB tokens. They apply to join a Discord server and they're onboarded into a group of other people that are passionate about the intersection of culture and technology. Within that group, it's everything from going to events together to meeting new and exciting people to building products around NFTs and uh, token-gated events. And basically inside of that club, you have this really exciting thing that happens where you meet really novel people, people who are excited about crypto, but then people who also want to push the cutting edge of what it means to use tokens as access to physical and digital events. And so what we see now is about 100 contributors coming to work on Friends with Benefits every day. We have members getting paid out of a DAO. We have events happening on a recurring basis. We've been doing token-gated parties in places like Miami and Paris and New York. And um, I think what you're starting to see now is that membership models of the past, so things like Soho House, are very commonplace in a Web2 world, but we've never seen a model in which you can have collective ownership over that group. And so what FWB does is it creates a system such that you have a membership club where you need tokens to get in. But as that club starts to grow and is successful, the original members of that get to capture the upside in the form of the token. And so it's a really exciting way just to get people involved in something cool like culture, but then also have an asset that's reflective to the value that that community creates. Another one that I'll call out is Forefront. You know, this is one that I've been referring a bunch of people to. I basically call it the port of entry for DAOs. So if you're new to crypto, you're new to social tokens, you're new to NFTs and you want to learn more about it, Forefront's a place to go hang out in a Discord server. You can hear from experts, people who live and breathe this stuff every day. You can um, hop on a newsletter that talks about all the exciting things that happened. And you don't need any tokens to be required there. You know, there's a, a governance token for Forefront, but the difference from Friends with Benefits is that you don't need to hold a specific amount of tokens to get involved. You can hop into a Discord, you can sign up for the newsletter, you can learn about where to get started. And from there, you can start to find the different pockets that you want to spend your time in. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it seems that the current ones that uh, you're paying the most attention to or currently working as usual in crypto are the ones which are a bit self-referential and, and circular in a way, right? Because it's the people who are excited about the tech or, or the potential of social tokens. It's the people who are interested in crypto uh, that then form the strong communities behind it, right? Would, would you say these are the niches that, that are taking off or, or actually have gained traction? What other kind of niches you know, are, we, are we starting to see already? Maybe some... Uh, I don't know, uh, interest groups or uh, cultural groups that are not so crypto related or not crypto first? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's a project called Seed Club that I'm really excited about. This is a social token incubator. So they work directly with creators to stand up Web3 economies. And so if you're a creator that's excited about the concept of tokenization, you've heard about NFTs, you've heard about social tokens, but you don't really know how to activate that in your project or your company, um, the C Club cohort works directly with you to help point you in the right direction, go through workshops, you know, talk to people and basically stand up these internet communities. And I think the common overlap you see here is that people are tokenizing culture now. You know, I think this is a big reason why NFTs are becoming so popular. So it's less about what are the financial implications of this asset and more about what is the mimetic value of it? You know, can other people relate to the rarity of this? Can they relate to the story behind it? And you're starting to notice now that with both NFTs and social tokens, there's ways to invest in culture that we haven't really seen before. And so a lot of the ways that I'm spending my time, um, I'm based here in Los Angeles, California, which I would like to say is the cultural hub of the world, is helping to educate creators on why this tokenization class of assets allows us to take these incredible ideas and trends and memes that we see every day in places like TikTok and actually give them a financial backing in the form of crypto tokens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and given that mimetic value where like the more people join, the more valuable it becomes, right? Simply by with the member count and, and engagements. So I think that concept has, has, has been incredibly powerful. And I guess to we'll get a lot deeper into to the mechanisms, uh, but just at a high level, have you seen how have, how have these adapted over time, right? What are some lessons and uh, good and bad that we have learned recently uh, and then why would you say these are the ones that you think have emerged or are successful? Or how do you benchmark that? Yeah, it's a great question. My biggest learning in the past couple of months has been that social tokens are now transitioning from like a novel concept to something that actually needs to be proven out in the wild. So V1 of social tokens was I'm going to buy this token because I like the idea of it. I like the sound of friends with benefits. A cultural membership sounds cool and exciting. You know, that can only go so far. What we're seeing now is what it means for these communities to be sustainable and to actually start generating revenue. And so, as I mentioned earlier with Friends of Benefits, we now have about 100 contributors that are looking to contribute to different working groups. The DAO has now employed about five different people from different product teams, editorial, membership, treasury, et cetera, et cetera. And what we're seeing now is that you go from a phase of, you know, pure just community where it's like we all come into Discord and talk about whatever is going on to, okay, we all recognize that we're here together. We have skin in the game. How do we build products and services that support our mission? And I think the biggest unlock that's going to be necessary for social tokens to scale is these communities proving that they can generate as much cash flow as something like a DeFi protocol, but doing that on the back of social products and services rather than on the back of financial instruments. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. I think that that is exactly some what, a topic that we want to dive into uh, after this as well, which is like in the end, you know, how do we when it's more mature, like friends of benefits, right? And how do you actually make it sustainable, generate cash flow and revenue? So perfect. Uh, of course, before we go there, maybe allow me to just unwind the clock a little bit uh, to your memories of like how all these social tokens start, right? How are they kind mm-hmm. of curated the genesis of uh, all of this? Uh, it seems like you said, you, you mentioned just now that like initially when 
people came together to form, I guess, friends with benefits. It was it was not such a serious thing, right? Just like, hey, it's something cool, right? I like the sound of it, and I just join and just chat in the groups. Is this kind of like the common uh, practice now for for social tokens? So maybe like it doesn't have to be kind of like forming around a, a serious DeFi product, you know, want to create all the synthetic products in the world or like want to be the number one place where you can exchange anything in the world, uh, in the crypto world at least, right? It seems to me that like you, you can just be a bunch of friends or the, vibe, the mm-hmm. vibe of it can come later, right? So how do you think about the, the genesis of these uh, social tokens? Is it forming around a particular person, a particular purpose, uh, an NFT group or just all of the above, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's a really, really awesome point to make. I think that mostly social tokens start around either one or two core individuals. So a creator that has a very cool idea for a social club to be able to facilitate. You know, the biggest reason why social tokens are now taking off is we have platforms that allow you to create tokens very easily, even if you're not a developer. So tools like uh, Coinbase, Rally, and Mirror are three of the biggest places where people are launching social tokens today. These are no-code platforms that allow you to spin up tokens on the back of either a publishing platform in the case of Mirror, in the form of a minting platform in the form of Coinvise, or in the form of like a community platform in the case of Rally. And when you start to give people token tooling without requiring them to be developers, they can be much more flexible at how they utilize that. And so what we saw over the past couple of years, if you were launching a token, you need to have a pretty sophisticated team of developers around you. You typically need to have um, hopefully a website, you know, more, more realistically like a product or a service that's related around that token. Typically, you underwent a fundraise to go and build this out. You had a white paper. You did this whole extensive process to go ahead and launch a token. Now that it's easy to spin a token up in about five minutes or less, people are being much more free about the way that they stand those up. You know, they're going in with a lot more open design space where they're saying, hey, we don't have all the answers here. You know, we have an intuition that this is a cool problem to solve. If you're also excited about it, come and hang out with us. And the biggest difference from the past to now is that when those people come together to solve that problem, they have a financial asset that shares the upside of that project. And so tokens basically represent liquid ownership. And what we start to see is that founders and creators are very generous about how they distribute those early on as a means to really incentivize and get people to spend time on those projects. And when you start to see something take hold, you start to notice that people are much more incentivized to spend their time because they not only have financial upside now, they're also working on something that they're really socially interested in. And I think this concept of working on what you love and spending time contributing to things that genuinely excite you, you know, that's the reason why crypto is so exciting to me. And I think that's the reason in particular why social tokens as a category have been so exciting in the past couple of months here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really more about identifying with a, a, some people or a particular vibe that uh, that they enjoy being around. And I think that in itself already gives so much intrinsic satisfaction that it's, it's really less about like, oh yeah, I'm getting it as to be, you know, to make it be rich and so on, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, although, of course, that could be a, a good side effect of that. Um, it, it's really interesting how it's almost like a, the opposite of how uh, the ICO days of the tokens and we were thinking about it, because, you know, if you only had a white paper uh, and you had nothing, but you had a core group of people who were just passionate about this direction, that was like maybe a red flag, right? Because, oh, you haven't built anything, you haven't raised any funds. But in this case, it's almost like it's a plus, right? Because you have, you then start off with a strong core group that uh, defines the vibe and it's okay, or in fact, even encouraged to, to start small and with very little other than a few people, huh? Yep. And I think the thing I'll pull out there is that capital formation and social tokens happens at a later date. With ICOs, you saw that capital formation happened at the onset. So people were buying tokens with Ether out of the gate to go and build a product or a service. With social tokens, you notice that people are earning this for being early in a community. 
they're receiving tokens from an airdrop, they're getting them for free or they're earning them from work. And what you see is that once that community becomes established, it will come together as a DAO, it'll have a community treasury. And then at that point, you'll execute a treasury diversification proposal to swap those tokens for something like ETH or USDC. But this maturity process of doing capital formation after there's been a proven community that's been established is fundamentally different from inviting capital out of the gate. And I think the type of contributors that you see are much more high quality because you kind of leave all of those moon boys at the door in favor of people that want to come in and actually do work and kind of build cool shit. And in the event that it works, you now have the same opportunity to raise capital, but it's in a very fundamentally different manner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's let's work on that analogy a, a little bit more, right? On on kind of like capital formation and then uh, escaping the moon boys thing. So one analogy that I've been really fond of to to explore is the idea of uh, proof of work, right? And mm. you mentioned just now that the early contributors they they might get the tokens just by being there, uh, just getting airdropped or just like chatting in a group, right? And then vibing with everybody else, and. I think this reminds me a lot of how the tokens should be distributed, right? Even in the early days with, say, Bitcoin and Ethereum, it you know you could use a laptop and earn a bunch of Bitcoins and ETH, right? Just from just by being there and providing the very basic necessities. But as it goes up, as demand goes up, then you know you need more hash rate or proof of stake. You need more tokens, and therefore the the requirement actually goes up in order to secure the network. And in this case to secure community, to make sure that the barriers mm. go up to, so that the, the same culture and vibe is, is maintained and protected, right? And we can also remember that when this was uh, ignored or sidelined, such as in the ICO days, uh, it was just too easy to, to get into these token groups and then it became like almost purely speculative, which is why it has now mm -hmm. moved back uh, towards this proof of work concept uh, in both DeFi and NFTs, right? In DeFi, you have to provide liquidity. Uh, in NFTs, I guess you kind of uh, need to find them early. Uh, and mm -hmm. in, in play to earn, especially, you need to provide your time and skill and capital mm -hmm. to join there. So with, with social tokens, right? Do you, do you see like the, a need for this some sort of like proof of work from membership? Uh, and I guess in the early days, it, it may be okay, but later on, right? How or do we need something even at the in the beginning, right? Rather than randomly people can't find your Discord. Because once people realize that this is a model that works and they know that like, hey, social tokens could be the next big thing, they're gonna try to randomly join all of the Discord groups and social token groups that they can find, try to just like chip in here and there. How do we now separate the the wheat from the chafe, so to speak? Yeah, fantastic point. I think decentralized org structures are fascinating. This is what I spend a lot of my time in on the DAOs that I work on is how do we find active contributors and how we get them paid for their work? You yeah. know, what I'll call out is that similar to any crypto network, the earlier you are in the life cycle of that network, the easier it is to earn tokens for your con contributions. And so for a lot of these social token projects, if you're very early on in the Discord, chances are you can claim tokens by getting an airdrop. You know, there might be like an emoji you can react to or something like that. But as it starts to be more high caliber, the potential to earn those tokens becomes harder and harder. And I think that's actually a benefit of having a stronger community. And so what I'll call out is that for most social clubs and you know, social token communities, you see passive contributions in the form of just being active in a Discord, you know, sending some messages and whatnot. And then you see active contributions, which is where you establish a formal role in that group. And you're getting paid either an allocation of tokens or a fixed monthly budget to build out you know, some core component of that group. And there's now tools that are available to help distribute those tokens in really intentional ways. So for the passive work side of things, there's a project called SourceCred that I think is fantastic. This basically tracks your contributions to a Discord server and allots you an internal balance based on the amount of engagement that you earn in that server. And then for the active contribution side, there's a project called Coordinate that I'm really fascinated by. 
So this is a tool that allows you to allocate tokens to a working group and allows the, those contributors to vote amongst themselves on who should be receiving that capital. And so you're noticing now that there are these distribution and compensation tools to allow people to earn tokens from their work. And over time, you're gonna notice that communities have these foundations and org structures in place that anyone can kind of poke around the surface of a community, You know, maybe come pop into a Discord and earn a couple of tokens here and there. But over time, there's gonna be funnels in place that if I don't wanna just be a passive contributor, if I really wanna work for that protocol, you know, I can slot into something like a product team and then be slotted into that coordinate distribution and start earning meaningful stakes in this project in the form of these tokens, which represent ownership in that community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So th that works really well at the earlier stage, right? As, as you mentioned, uh, with the airdrops and even social organizations coming in. And as it grows, now imagine that now the token is liquid and you know there's a pool on SociSwap or Uniswap and now technically anyone can, can buy the tokens and then be part of the Discord uh, without contributing, so to speak, right? Do do we do you see the need for some sort of like contribution or engagement to complement not just like buying the tokens to access and how do we balance that with <laughs> getting members in? Yeah, so onboarding is extremely extremely important for social communities. I'm noticing this more and more every day. Um, to give context for FWB, how it works is you submit an application to a membership committee. This is basically a three to five minute application process. You tell us who you are, what you're passionate about, who referred you to the community. And we have a host committee of about 15 members in FWB that review every incoming application. In order to join the community, you need to be approved by a vast majority of those members. You receive a welcome email. And from there, we invite you to buy the tokens and then come and access the community. But that barrier and that threshold where there needs to be some amount of time and energy contributed to show that you're intentional about joining, I think is extremely, extremely important. And I imagine a lot more communities are going to start using this. You know, to give some context, early on in FWB, you could buy 50 tokens. You could go into the Discord and use a bot called Clabland basically to sync your wallet. If you held 50 tokens, you automatically got onboarded into the group. What we saw is that as the group got more uh, cool and exciting, as more people were coming in and wanting to contribute that may not have fit the vibe or the ethos of that community. And so by standing up this membership committee, we had a way to basically ensure that there is a filter in place to make sure that the vibe was high, but then also make sure that that token gated aspect was met as well. And so over time, I think what you're going to see is that every notable social club will have a membership onboarding team that will not only be responsible for making sure you're applying to the group, but also helping to welcome you when you get into it, helping you to point you in the right direction, showing you who the cool people are, you know, really holding your hand to get involved so that once you get popped into that Discord server, it's not like you're just floating around. You know, you should have a clear direction of, hey, if I'm a designer, I'm going to go hang out here. If I'm really into NFTs, I'm going to go hang out here. And what I think that creates is a much more clear funnel where if you're buying an asset to join a community, you should feel active in how you're contributing. And these funnels will make it a lot easier to get started. And then hopefully over time, give you ways to earn more of those tokens for the work that you can contribute. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So th this is, uh, I think, an important point for all social tokens to to remember, right? To have the additional kind of uh, conditions and not just uh, having those tokens uh, uh, in your wallet. Uh, now, actually, this also applies to even, I wonder, certain DeFi projects, because I know you work on DeFi DAOs and so on. And uh, mm -hmm. I mean, we do see somewhat some a trend like this, say, with the token sales, like IDOs and so on where you may need to like share this post on social media or you might need to like and follow or retweet some things and, and share some posts, right? I, I guess that kind of is a little bit of proof of work, but it is a different vein where like that does, mm. that does not, it's not a requirement for you to try to match the vibe, right? It's trying to do something a little bit useful. Do you think this 
this kind of aspect of like social proof of work also can apply to things like NFT sales or even uh, token sales. And we have seen some early examples, for example, in NFT sales, right? I think um, proof of participation to be able to participate in sales is very exciting. I think it gets dangerous when you start to incentivize actions that are not very, uh, I'll use the word ethical in nature, but like running up engagement on social media platforms, you know, getting people to engage or retweet stuff that don't actually care about it. You know, when you give people tasks to basically blow up your own project that aren't correlated to the growth of that community, it gets very, very dangerous. But I think what we see now is that holding assets that represent cultural membership, so something like a CryptoPunk or a Bored Ape, you know, these are great examples of NFTs and asset classes that have cultural value. And your participation is the fact that you collected that prior to even knowing that there was another opportunity at your doorstep. And so the difference from, let's say, a campaign to share a tweet and then be able to buy an allocation in an ICO is that, um, you know, I need to have known what was culturally relevant six months ago to be able to have the opportunity to contribute in this thing. I can't really front run that by spinning up 10 Twitter accounts and going and retweeting it from different addresses. You know, I have to have proven that I am here and have understood this industry for a long time to be able to participate. And I think that's positive. You know, I think for a lot of people that could be discouraging saying, oh, if I'm too late to join the game, I can't get involved. But what does it encourage is, is for you to actually look under the hood about where are people coordinating? What are the most relevant projects in the space? And how do I get involved with that community? Because I know once I'm involved with that community, there are going to be many more opportunities that are un unlocked right before me as a result of joining. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and that's the same with, uh, like you said, like the social curation part or discovery part uh, that comes with, like, for example, punks, right? And I see now quite a few NFT projects are doing this whitelisting practice, even where like, if you must be in the Discord beforehand to kind of like get a ticket to mint or, or like get whitelisted to, to join the sale. So it seems that uh, all of these practices are emerging uh, and more projects need to pay attention to that. Of course, mm. along the same vein, if uh, we introduce these additional conditions before people can join certain groups, right? Uh, it also kind of surfaces the question of like inclusivity uh, versus uh, excludability or like exclusion in these social groups, right? I think there's a fundamental ethos in the crypto or Web3 space in general that we want these opportunities to be as available as possible. And, you know, having some proof of participation and also capital requirements, uh, at least in the, in the latest stage, like all these are, are inherently, you know, either pricing people out or, or pricing like late people, uh, people who are late um, away from it. So there's a balance to be struck, right, on like being wanting to still get people in, right? So how do we kind of balance this, uh, I guess, uh, irony with uh, crypto culture. Yeah, I love this question. My friend uh, Gabby Goldberg published a piece called The Social Token Paradox. I would recommend that everyone read this. It helps to identify this issue, and it's one that's very near and dear to me, specifically because of some of the communities that I work for. What I'll say from a high level is that early on, you're incentivized to get everyone into that community. Typically, the value to join that is very low, and there's a lot of rewards to be gained from taking a chance, You know, maybe spending a couple hundred dollars on a community, getting involved. but as these things become successful, to your point, the price to join just becomes outrageous. You know, today, um, to join a community like Friends with Benefits, it costs around $15,000. And that's just not sustainable. And that's not something that we want to have for the long period of time. So what we're now exploring is different membership models where if you want to have economic rights and ownership over a community, we always want there to be a threshold that feels very meaningful. So something like that token amount that feels very high and very intentional is very valuable to me. You know, I don't think that the answer is to drastically lower that threshold to make it more financially accessible. I think the winning solution here is to make that tier so much more valuable that people recognize that by spending that amount, 
and making that investment that they're actually contributing to a very strong system that will get more value back for them than what they contributed to. And then in the middle there, what I'd say is that there are people who want to get involved with these communities that don't really care about the economic rights or the governance of it. They just want to come, come hang out and meet cool people. And so what I imagine we'll see now is more um, social membership. So things like an NFT season pass where you can come and buy uh, a non-transferable NFT for a couple hundred bucks. You get put into a couple channels that you're able to meet people from. But that's fundamentally different from you being able to contribute to the budget allocation of the DAOs or contribute to hiring discussions or to fundraising announcements. You know, there's almost different levels of participation. And the cool thing here is that, you know, if done right, those membership passes and those social passes can serve as revenue that goes back to the DAO. And those members who hold the token can reap the benefits of that on-chain revenue coming from something like the sale of NFTs. And you have this balancing act where the, low, the new group of people is meeting you know, new and exciting people. They're having fun. They're in Discord. They're meeting cool people. They're able to get in at a much lower price. But those longtime members who hold that large amount of tokens, they now have a blossoming treasury of assets that they can govern and distribute that allows them to be more involved in the day-to-day -day operations of the group. And most importantly, it's all still community-owned and operated. You know, there's no point in time where only the founders are getting the revenue, only a select group of people is getting the revenue. You know, anyone can buy those tokens. You don't need to buy 75 of them to get involved. You can buy a couple tokens here and there. And all of that economic value is captured by this token. But the way in which that is shared is fundamentally different as per these different membership tiers to get people involved. Mm, right. So I hear the idea of membership tiers now. And in fact, this can, well, solve the problem of the barrier sort of because you have a differentiated one and also bring in a revenue stream. That's that's kind of like, that's incredible, killing two birds with one stone. Mm. Yeah, because uh, the, the other kind of like possibility I was I was going to bring up uh, is of course the, the counterculture of like then saying, hey, look, punks are too expensive. So let's do a party now, right? Or uh, look, um, you know, people pleasers, uh, NFTs getting too expensive. There are people who want to want it for personal gain. Let's make it socialized. Let's set up pleaser DAO. I think both of these you're uh, you're probably a part of as well. Mm -hmm. so I, I almost sense like all DAOs or all social groups and social tokens need to have that level of inclusivity. Otherwise, uh, you're gonna get people who find ways around it, right? Be it through factionalization, some sort of like unionized way to, to get in. Is this a cause that you support as well? Absolutely. I think multiplayer crypto is incredibly powerful. What I've recognized over the past couple of weeks is that getting your friends to come together and spend a little bit money is extremely more interesting than trying to find one person that has endless amounts of capital. You know, um, to give an anecdote, I've been helping my friends here in LA onboard to NFTs. And when we release collections, we'll put out a fixed number of assets for a low selling point and me going to my closest friends and saying, Hey, can you spend 0.1 ETH to support my friend is much easier than me trying to convince them to drop five or 10 ETH on a one of one piece. That's like exclusive and rare. You know, I don't think those worlds are mutually exclusive, but what it shows is that when it comes to capital formation in crypto, doing it in a multiplayer way where you have something like a party bid, or you have something like a fractionalized ownership of an asset, it's just much more palatable. And I think this is like what crypto is really good at is enabling niche at scale. And so these tools, I think, are all fantastic. And to the point around like um, gamification of it, you know, if you have an asset that's a really high value good, I think that it's actually a benefit that one of those assets is owned by a lot of people because the mimetic value of that, you know, for example, the living dead zombie from Fractional that was one with a party bid, you know, that asset becomes this big meme that not only supports the platforms that were used to buy it, so party big and Fractional, but it also supports the punk asset classes at whole, you know. There's a bunch more people wearing it as their avatar. There's like this whole cool cultural thing that happens. And um, it just goes back to the source of like, NFTs are better when they're shared amongst people. 
I think that allowing people to have better opportunities to collect high value assets is extremely interesting. And I believe we're going to see exponentially more multiplayer tools that allow people to crowdfund capital to buy extremely rare goods. Indeed, indeed, right? Uh, I think this is, it really straddles the idea of like scarcity and uh, inclusivity or the exclusion with inclusion because, I mean, theoretically speaking, only a maximum of 10,000 people can ever own punks, right? But with fractionalization now, this can be re really be amplified and a lot of people can still identify with and enjoy and own certain amount of punks and identify with a particular punk even within the collection. So I thought like, wow, okay, this this these tools around social infrastructure have like expanded the definition of social groups and hopefully we continue to see more of that. Uh, mm. Of course, when, when they come together and, and at the genesis and at the capital formation stage, as we have been discussing quite a bit, it, it is quite clear, right? Because we pull together money, you know, we're going to participate, want to buy it. And like, there's a very cl clear mission and goal that's like at that point uh, for fractionalization or with like social groups, like it's kind of like fun to hang out. I think it's a lot harder, maybe I can hear from your experience, to sustain a level of engagement and, and contribution, right? Over time, you know, the initial hype wears down, you know, <laughs> it starts to, to go cold. Uh, and I think that also somewhat requires some level of uh, incentivization or, or uh, like I think some ideas have come up with like membership refresh or something along those lines, mm -hmm. right? Have you seen this uh, happen in, in some of the social groups? And how do you balance that with the idea of like, if I own something, I shouldn't lose it, right? Like they are an owner and, and you can't take it away from them. But did you do you take away certain rights for them to then have a say in, in governance if they're inactive? Yeah, I think this is a really important point. And honestly, I think that a lot of DeFi communities went through this, you know, very real this past this past year. You know, there was a big wave around DeFi. DeFi tokens were mooning. And once those tokens started not appreciating as much, those discords became ghost towns because there was no longer that hyper excitement to participate. The one trend that I'm excited about from social tokens is the idea of seasons. So basically defining a fixed period of time with a shared mission or intent for a goal to solve. And so every season you come together as a community, you say, hey, for the next three months, we want to do this as our core target. You know, you broadly spec out the intents and the goals of that particular time frame, and then you add incentives around it to make sure that you accomplish it. So for example, allocating a fixed number of tokens to the course of that season for core contributors, or for example, putting a bounty on the back of a task or a service to be performed within that season's goals. Um, I think that's a great way to align these decentralized communities. And the refresh that happens is basically when a season ends, you have the opportunity to either increase a threshold. So in the case of FWB, what we did is every season we increased it by five tokens. So if you were active in the previous season, you typically earned enough tokens from source cred to be over the next threshold for the following one. But if you were inactive, you now have to revisit that community and say, oh, why did I get kicked out of this group? It's because I was inactive. There's a new season. It requires me to read up on what's been happening and what's going to happen next. And I think that constant re-engagement method of like, it's okay to be passive and not contribute, but you can't free ride this. If you're going to free ride this, you need to come and give capital back into the DAO in order to stay involved. I feel like it's a great way to make sure you're constantly re-engaging people and making sure that those who are creating the most value are always earning the rewards from doing so. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I, I hear both a carrot and a stick, right? With the carrot side of things, you know, you need to give them more incentives if they continue to participate. And the, and the stick part is, you know, they can get kicked out of the group. Uh, but we stop short of like burning their tokens or something. I've seen some crazy examples of proposals where like, okay, if you don't vote in governance or if you don't participate, uh, uh, took us my and I think that kind of goes against the value. So I I, I do like the lines mm -hmm. that are being drawn here. Uh, Can I add a comment on that real quick? Yeah. 
I think that um, disincentivizing a lack of engagement is really, really uh, dangerous. You know, for the vast majority of communities, you will see that about 5% of the members are creating the most of that conversation. I think it's important to recognize that 90% of any community will probably not participate on a day to day. And you trying to disincentivize people from not engaging is going to do more harm than good. You know, what happens is once you start incentivizing good participation, other people see that and they want to start getting involved. And as you start to grow that group from like 1% to 5% to 10% of members contributing, it's a much more positive flywheel. I think that um, negative reinforcement can be really deteriorous, specifically mm -hmm. in crypto when there's so many reasons to spend your time or so many places to spend your time, excuse me. You know, you want to really make sure that the people who are doing the work are feeling like extremely incentivized, extremely taken care of. You know, they feel like they're a part of something really special. If you punish them for going to spend time elsewhere, I mean, I'm speaking from personal experience. I'll just say, whatever, I'm going to go hang out somewhere else. You know, like I don't need to be in this community or something like that. So I think the the takeaway there is that if you're building a community, if you notice someone that's putting in a lot of time and effort, like really drastically over incentivize them. I think we're so early on in DAO capital allocation and token distributions that I've long been a proponent of governance is severely, severely under incentivized, you know, relative to things like liquidity mining and some of these other ways that we're distributing tokens. You know, people participating in governance is extremely valuable and important. And if you're a project that has a DAO treasury to allocate, please look into your community, look into your Discord server and find the people that are there on a social level and look to empower them as much as possible because it's going to have extremely compounding effects, in my opinion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thanks for that uh, clarification. Uh, it does seem that like the, the power dynamics somewhat or the negotiation power of uh, social tokens is uh, <laughs> it's totally flipped because of the abundance of it and how easy it is to just create one or uh, fork one if, you know, maybe the administrators mm -hmm. are, are not being ethical. Right. So, and, and it, because if it's formed around the good vibes of a social group, then when you create like negative vibes, that can also spiral down very quickly. So, of course, when we talk about incentives now, uh, then the bigger question behind it is then who gets to decide? How is it decided? And then how much incentive should we give, right? It, it comes, it brings in the question of like the governance tools and processes, who gets to uh, do that? And also how much incentives in terms of like the token rewards, right? Because then it, it kind of implies that maybe you need a, if you want to have perpetual seasons, you may need mm. perpetual token emissions. And that's something that's not yet commonplace. Everybody says that, okay, there's this fully dilated valuation. There's this uh, mm -hmm. no, max token supply. So how do we, how do we approach these two major issues? It's a really, really great points. I think what we're noticing now is that every DAO has a core group of about three to 10 members who are making a lot of the key decisions there. You know, it's important to recognize that them proposing decisions does not mean that it needs to be um, accepted as a decision. You know, what I'm noticing now is that a lot of social clubs have board structures where there are specific members who are trusted amongst that community to make very meaningful decisions. So rather than putting everything through a decentralized vote on snapshot, um, there's a lot of situations when, you know, someone needs to get paid $1,000 to go and produce a video or to pre produce a piece of content. You know, governance minimization, I think, is very important. And so what you see now is that having a trusted elected group of community members who have power and responsibility to execute decisions on behalf of the DAO is actually a very powerful thing. I think where this gets dangerous is if that group of people is the only one making decisions and that process is not transparent and that process is not being vetted through the community. And so you kind of have this balancing act where, the community almost needs to appoint a specific group of individuals to have more power than the rest of them. But then there's always this checks and balance games where if that core group of leaders is being too centralized in their decision making, you know, the rest of the community can vote to either have them slashed, to have either members removed or recycled and whatnot. 
And um, I think this is the process that we see today. You know, to your point about token emissions, I think that that's exactly right. The truth is that no social token community has come anywhere near the point of being sustaining enough or being legitimate enough to even entertain these conversations. And so I think the fact that this is something that we're now thinking through um, from a high level is signal that there is something cool and exciting happening here. And I look forward to solving these challenges as we hit them, because it's not one that I've seen personally, but one that I know is definitely going to come up over the next couple of years here. Yeah, for sure. And I think here's where I think we, we bring in some of the early examples, right? I think it, one of the previous panels that you're part of, uh, we're listening to Kane and he was talking about how synthetics has ended up being more of a social, I guess, infrastructure and, and early precedent and example. And that's really the mm -hmm. case, right? When we talk about the quadratic voting and then the council model and even like the, the more like opening up emissions uh, on a continuous basis for people who contribute and paying these contributors. I think we're starting to see that like, Actually, hey, you know, this is a model that, that's kind of working and, and more people need to pay attention to that uh, as per our conversation here as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that V1 of all these social clubs is just like get people to care about it, get people to give a shit. And then I think over time they start to mature and they have more organizational structure around them. So I'll be the first to say that working for a DAO is extremely messy. It's completely unprecedented. We have no prior models to go off of. But I feel like in the past six months, whether it be through DeFi, NFTs or social tokens, we're slowly starting to chip away at an organizational structure that makes sense. What I think we're going to start seeing is that DAOs are very fluid in how you contribute. You know, compensation is based on a project by project basis rather than on a time horizon. So instead of me locking you into a four-year contract where you have a vested token grant, I think you'll start to see that projects are allocating tokens to specific projects and specific tasks. And as a contributor, I don't need to feel like I need to be locked into a multi-year time horizon to create value. You know, I can come and create value and chances are if I'm successful in that project, I'll be so inclined that I want to come back and keep doing more. I think that that's the flywheel that allows us to have these things be self-sustainable without forcing us to fall into models of the past. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. With the new paradigm of, uh, I think you were alluding a little bit to the, this is like the ultimate freelancer or gig economy or creator mm -hmm. economy model where come and go as you please, create value as you, pre as you please, cross-pollinate across different groups and uh, DAOs and creator economies and yeah, let all of them flourish in, in their own way. I think we've come to a point now where we're starting to talk about the future. So let's let's head a bit towards that, right? You, let's come back to the idea that you were mentioning in the beginning about the revenue models, because now that we want more communities to be more sustainable and create cash flow, uh, it seems that you do agree that there needs to be some form of ongoing utility, right? And one mm -hmm. way is to spin out new products, uh, be it you know seasonal passes or incubate new, I don't know, goods and services that people pay for. I guess certain, certain products can also generate passive income. I think we've seen, for example, with uh, NFT communities, there are royalties from all the secondary sales. And so if newer members want to come in, like that could be a, a way as well. And I think increasingly an emerging idea is also kind of token swaps, right? Where different communities can mm -hmm. align interests by having ownership in each other's communities and, and therefore kind of like boost both of their memberships and uh, reputation and awareness. Are, are, do these make sense to you or what else are you seeing that could emerge? Yeah, I think those all make perfect sense to me. I would broadly categorize revenue for social clubs as curation. I think that there's a lot of ways in which curation can play a really valuable role in these communities. You know, now, thanks to the emergence of these asset classes, there's now a lot of value that can be captured from that. So to give some examples of that, um, with FWB, we have an FWB gallery. This allows us to release NFTs through a branded marketplace that's built on Zora. And we can add a commission to that 
um, to that sale. You know, Super Air just released something called Super Air Spaces where I can come in as a curator, I can spotlight really valuable work, and then I can earn a commission on the back of helping with that sale. I think acting as a dealer and a market broker where you're able to help facilitate and spotlight a different NFT collection and earn a commission on the back of it is a great starting point. I think to what you said before, you know, um, DAOs are going to be releasing more and more assets. You notice now that there are these avatar collections, there are different NFT drops and whatnot. You know, I think that a lot of these communities will end up doing different merchandise models, you know, digital merchandise, they'll start selling NFTs, they'll have secondary royalties and perpetuity that will all go back to the DAO, which I think is incredible. And then I think the last one is just thinking about how to, you know, really play around with membership dues. You know, I think in one world, people are just holding tokens to be in a community forever. I think in another model, there are things like fellowships, there are things like scholarships, and you start to notice that, you know, maybe on-chain revenue isn't only about the amount of ETH or USDC that you're generating, but it's also a little bit more cyclical in the sense of how do we give back tokens to this community to onboard new members? And those members are going to create more value for this community, which is going to drive token price upwards. And what I see as the winning formula here, which is basically what we see with DeFi tokens is like some benchmark level of on-chain revenue from curation and the sale of something like NFTs, and then a very strong placement on community values and on social capital. And you'll start to notice that community tokens are basically a premium placed on the value of a DAO treasury. You know, the, the sentiment and ethos of a community is almost more valuable than the assets that they're holding in their wallet address. And so what you see is kind of a one-two punch where it's like, let's go and sell NFTs, let's generate some commissions, some revenue, but then let's really go to bat and get people out there talking on Twitter, you know, out them in the real world throwing IRL events and spreading the likeness of this community. And I think that a lot of people are going to start investing more on the back of the sentiment or the idea of a community more than they are on the back of the balance sheet or the treasury holdings of that DAO or that treasury. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Kind of like the mimetic value as the amplifying force behind any good or service that you're providing, right? Mm, that's yes. exactly right. Awesome. Uh, there are, are a couple other uh, future trends that I'd love to bring up. Uh, just two more. One is actually on the convergence with, uh, say, the other trends, right? The DeFi's, the NFTs, and DAOs. Uh, this is where I think I'm not sure whether we're seeing enough of this yet, right? Because as more capital formation forms, as we have goods and services, uh, not only do we need governance, now we also need treasury management or diversification. We need like more mature tools to to uh, govern this, and then maybe even integrate with different DeFi tools, right? I might want to lend out against it, or I might give people a trial of my social tokens. Who knows? Uh, you definitely need liquidity for that. You might allow people to uh, have, say, the success options if it, if it does well, or some uh, success-based options based on like performance metrics of the DAO, uh, be it like membership or contributions. Uh, do you see some early uh, examples or signs of this as well? Yeah, it's a great point. I see DeFi as a toolkit for social token communities. So some of the tools that we use actively in the DAOs I'm a part of, um, Nosa Safe Multisig is an obvious one that everyone uses. Mm -hmm. I'm excited about a tool called Parcel, which plugs into a Nosa Safe Multisig and allows you to do more uh, bulk payments. It allows you to do treasury distributions. It allows you to track HR payments and whatnot. So just more organizational type tooling. Um, we use things like Sableer and Superfluid to go ahead and route token payments to contributors. So allowing you to have like more fluid ownership models and whatnot, I think is really, really exciting. And then under the hood, you know, for treasury management, there are protocols like Ribbon Finance, which are doing an incredible job of generating yield for um, unproductive assets. So for example, single-sided liquidity where you deposit USDC into a vault and Ribbon goes in, you know, does put options and does all this crazy DeFi shit that earns you an attractive yield. You know, there are ways which DeFi communities can help plug into social token DAOs to put capital to work in a way that doesn't feel super risk intensive. 
you know, the reason why I mentioned Ribbon is that a lot of the times in DeFi, we notice that APY is tied to like highly risk, risk intense asset, you know, investments. So things like providing a liquidity provision with and permanent loss or staking in a protocol that has um, an audited smart contract or something like that. But more and more, I think we're going to notice that people want to place their assets in places that have limited risk. And so lending protocols like Aave and Compound, I think, are kind of the default here. But you'll notice that as treasury managers get more sophisticated, they will be able to take advantage of things like ribbon finance, of charm, of visor, you know, like Uniswap V3 liquidity provision processes. And what you're going to notice is that a lot of these assets that are sitting in the treasury that have been earned from curation and from commissions are now going to be generating yield and making that treasury more and more valuable over time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, exactly. And so my gut feel is that actually DeFi has been looking for real world use cases or like real econo economic activity for the longest time, right? It's always been like a circular kind of like speculation, perhaps, right? Some ideas of NFTs and social tokens, which is getting more mainstream, like this could be like the kind of economic activity that brings in the real world and brings in real activity to, to DeFi and, you know, all of us can prosper together. That's exactly right, man. And I think that I've long lived in a world where I think everything is going to be on chain. I think that DeFi trying to solve problems of things that are happening off chain doesn't make any sense to me. And so what I'm really passionate about for the creator economy is the fact that we're bringing all of these ideas on chain, you know, things like NFT sales, things like social token membership, things like, you know, treasury diversification proposals. The fact that all this is happening on chain in a Web3 native world, I think sets the perfect precedent to allow these tools to be used to their full potential. And I believe that DeFi is going to be the most obvious, you know, infrastructure of all financial tools in the world. And thanks to things like the creator economy, we now have ecosystems to explore those in a really meaningful way with people that are savvy and educated on why it's important and how to use them to their advantage. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, allow me to wrap up with an idea, which is a little bit more out there. Uh, in fact, when I tried to Google it, I think no links came up. I was like a little <laughs> bit surprised, right? Uh, even though I hear people talking about it, which is the idea of NTFs. Uh, it's not a mistake. It's not. I'm not referring to NFTs, but rather non-transfer, non-transferable fungibles, uh, which is, I think, to me, you know, it could manifest as an NFT. It could manifest as an attestation on your uh, NFT itself, something that forms your identity. Uh, it seems that, like, as we form these social groups, right, identity becomes an ever increasingly important part, right? Your social reputation, your social capital, all co gathers around, accumulates around your identity. Uh, but it seems that it's still fluid, right? What if I just give away my membership token? I give away the tokens I have, or I get hacked and somebody gets access to that. Uh, I need a way to still prove my identity on chain. Uh, and I'm not sure whether we have enough conversation and, and tech around this. Uh, so, you know, what is out there with NTFs? Do you see that this is an underappreciated area as well? This is evolving. Yeah, underappreciated, but very exciting. I'm happy that you called this out because this is a sector that I think is going to become really, really fascinating over the next couple of months here. Um, some of the examples I'll call out, you know, Ribbon Finance's token is currently non-transferable. There was a governance vote to make it transferable and the community voted not to do that. I think that's a really powerful signal that people who are involved specifically for governance, right, and to actively participate in a community sets a really strong precedent for a secondary market when it actually emerges. There's a community called Seed Club that I'm involved with where those tokens are currently non-transferable. Um, ArcX is playing with a really interesting thing called the DeFi Passport which is a non-transferable NFT that basically allows you to take out collateralization and uh, borrows that are much more competitive than other DeFi protocols. And I think, um, as I mentioned with the membership pass with FWB, we're thinking of making these season passes non-transferable, where the only way to be able to purchase one is to get approved through an application. You can purchase one of them as a member and that sits as a non-transferable asset. And I think this new standard around 
recognizing there is value in non-transferability is really, really important. And while we're in the early stages of it, I think we're going to see a ton more examples of it. Because to your point, I think identity is extremely valuable. And right now, I think the easiest way to create an identity around on-chain assets is to limit transferability as to make sure that that person is always building up that reputation in a really meaningful way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. We've introduced a lot more tools to a social projects arsenal, right? They think about utility, non-transferability, and so on. Uh, if I may just drive this point home a little bit further, um, mm-hmm. I, I do think it comes with a little bit of trade-off as well, because we do need identifiers for identity, but it also means that now your private key is even more important, right? What if you lose it? And then, yeah, this this non-transferable asset is also gone uh, in a way. Uh, so I almost feel that we need safeguards still with some level of social recovery-ish. <laughs> it's almost like a key management thing with uh, NTFs. And uh, thankfully, the social groups are already um, by itself like a, a, a way of social recovery because people know you, right? And they know your contributions. Mm. Uh, but of course, the downside is that I have to prove that I'm me somehow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think what we're going to notice is that um, a lot of the platforms that are using Web3 bots today, so platforms like Discord, are going to become extremely more Web3 native. And so what you're going to notice is that your identity is not only tied to your on-chain wallet addresses, I think a lot of these platforms are going to start reading your assets on-chain to ascribe you an identity on their platform. And over time, you're going to notice that the act of connecting MetaMask is not the only way to build an identity online. The platforms that you can contribute to, the servers that you join, you know, I'll give a great example. When I see someone DM me on Discord, I'm at about 200 servers on Discord. And the reason I'm in those servers is that when someone messages me, I can see how many we have in common. And immediately on our first message, if they have more than 10 servers in common with me and they all look like great servers, I know that I can trust this person. We can have a valuable conversation. You know, obviously none of that is happening on chain, but that's just one example of the fact that like social proof can live off chain. And in crypto, I think that there's a combination of both on chain identity and off chain identity. And I think a lot of these social platforms are going to do a lot of interesting work to help bring those to be one and the same. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think this idea of the mutual service is, is a particularly powerful one. I think th- this is essentially the social graph or social network that's forming, right? And uh, my gut feel or my personal take on this whole decentralized social media thing is that, hey, maybe the platform really doesn't matter, right? It's, it's about the social networks that are forming. And if we already have that with the social tokens with the NFT communities and the DAOs, right? Like, you know, technically this is already subverting the power of the platforms, right? Because they now don't hold our networks hostage. Like we have the relationships off, mm-hmm. uh, on chain or curated with tokens. And perhaps this is the starting point of a, a truly decentralized social network that's global. That's exactly right. I think what you're going to start to notice here is that when communities become powerful enough, they're going to go off platform. They're going to create their own social networks. They're going to create their own custom Reddits. They're going to create their own custom Instagram and Twitters and Facebooks and whatnot. And um, it's a very exciting world, man. I mean, I think that the pr- the reason why I love crypto is that people are so cutting edge in how they spend their time online. You know, I have never found a time in my life where I open my computer and get more joy out of talking to people online. And I think the fact that people recognize that social media is a weapon when used effectively is a really valuable signal that we have something really powerful at our disposal here. And that's why I've dedicated my entire life to helping to figure it out. Awesome. I think that's a perfect note to end it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Cooper, for joining us today. Is there anything you would like to shout out? Uh, no, who, how, where do we reach you? And where do we find some of the, uh, the groups that you're most excited about? Yeah, I'd say the easiest place to reach me is on Twitter, at Cooper Trupa. You'll notice in my bio, I have a bunch of communities that I'm involved with. Um, in my profile, there's a link to an alias page, which has all of the podcasts that I've spoken on. It has a lot of my tweets and different communities that I reference. So definitely check that out. 
Um, on Discord, I'm Koopa Troopa number 9799. That's where I spend most of my time online. So if you've made it this far into the podcast and got to the point of learning about where my Discord is, please shoot me a message. I'd be happy to have a conversation about this talk or anything that might excite you. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Cooper. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you for having me, man. This is fantastic. All right. Thank you, everyone. And see you next time.